Coming up, we finally have the news that Shohei Otani is signing with the Dodgers. So I break down all the ramifications of that, what his contract means, what this means for baseball, and what he will look like in a Dodger uniform. And then we get to a couple more MLB things before breaking down week 14 in the NFL and look forward to what will probably be a pretty entertaining playoff race these last few weeks in the NFL. So Shohei, some MLB stuff, and NFL week 14 coming up right after this. I've been waiting to talk baseball until we got some big news, and we finally got the big news in MLB free agency this weekend, and that was Shohei Otani finally made his decision, and he decided to go to the Los Angeles Dodgers. And it's hard not to see why. He ends up getting a 10-year, $700 million contract. We will break down all those numbers, what that means, but $700 million blows away anything we've ever seen, at least in North American sports. Blows away any sort of NFL contract, any sort of NBA contract we've seen. And it frankly blows away anything we've ever seen in baseball. So a $700 million contract is what Otani signs for. We knew it was going to be a lot. There were some rumors that he might take a shorter term deal maybe with a higher annual value and potentially try to time free agency again once he's able to pitch again because he won't pitch next year uh, due to his elbow injury. But when you can get 10 years, $700 million, it's kind of hard to pass that up. And it's kind of hard to argue that he should have gone somewhere else. He should have waited. Most generational athletes never see $700 million in a lifetime and Otani's going to get it over 10 years. And yes, there are deferrals, and we will get to that. But just the contract itself, I mean, you can go to you know, the greats of baseball, whether that's A-Rod, his big contracts, even to some of the more modern superstars like Mike Trout. Like Those guys aren't even getting to $700 million in their lifetime, and Otani gets it in one contract. Even if you look at other sports, Patrick Mahomes, yeah, he might not even get $700 million in his lifetime. Le- LeBron James, he's right now just around $500 million in his NBA earnings. Uh, the way that NBA salaries are going, he might or probably will get to $700 million before his career is over. But that's over, you know, 21, you know, it'll probably be closer to 24 or 25 seasons. And Otani's getting that in 10. So like I said, this is unprecedented, at least in North American sports. Haven't seen anything like it, but it is well-deserved. And we will get to, again, the, the details in a second. We will get to what it means on the field, all of that. But if there was a player to deserve this contract, if there was a player who was going to set the bar this high, it was going to be someone like Otani. Because we've talked about him you know, at, at nauseum at times leading up to this big free agency decision that what he was doing last year and what he's been doing the last few years is something we just haven't seen in baseball and frankly haven't seen in any sport. 
Now you can make the argument that, you know, baseball players don't have the same impact as, you know, football or basketball. And so Otani might not have the impact as, you know, a Patrick Mahomes or LeBron James. But I could make the really big argument that what we've seen Otani do the last few years is the most impressive thing we've seen any athlete do of the last decade and and of the last century. So for someone like him to break that record, I think he deserves it and I'm happy for him. Despite playing for a division rival in the Angels, I've always really liked Otani. He's now, you know, spurred the Mariners twice. He sounded like we were going to get him back in 2017. Had a maybe small chance of getting him this year. And he's turned us down twice. But I, I still am a huge fan. I'm, I, I love what he's done for the sport. He just seems like a really down-to-earth guy, despite now being a 700 millionaire. So that's basically my whole way of saying, you know, if, if someone was going to get 700 million, I'm glad it's Otani, everything he's done for the sport, and all of that. Now let's turn to what this means on the field and what this means for the value of just Otani the player and the value of spending $700 million on one player. Now let's, let's talk the contract details for a second because this is going to be a little bit different than just a traditional 10 years, $700 million contract. We don't have the full details, but we do know it's not going to be just $70 million each year for Otani. There are going to be quite a lot of deferrals. And if you don't know what deferrals are in, in sports, if you haven't heard about somebody like Bobby Benilla, let's say, deferrals are a way for teams to essentially defer money out past the, the, the date of the contract. So if the Dodgers wanted to not pay Otani $70 million a year, which would be crazy, they can defer some of that money, obviously with the the agreement of the player to pretty much an indefinite time. Now, obviously, they're not going to do it for 100 years because Otani's, at least I don't think he's going to live for another 100 years, but if anybody would, I wouldn't be shocked if it was Otani. But they can, they can defer out payments for you know, 10, 20 years out in the future to help kind of lower the initial cost. And it sounds like Otani was the one to kind of bring that idea up. Because the idea of sending $70 million on a player, even for someone like the Dodgers, you know, for someone like the Yankees or the Mets, these big spenders, that's still a lot of money to put towards one player. And so for Otani to come and say, hey, if, if this is the agreed upon number, you know, we can defer some of those payments. And that way, you know, frees up a little bit more money to kind of fill out the rest of the roster. So it makes sense from his point of view. He's still getting the money. It's just deferred out a little bit more. And then the team is able to have a little bit more, bit more money to spend in the short term to be able to fill out the roster and compete for a World Series. So to me, that's a no-brainer. Yes, from a, an economics point of view, Otani's $700 million contract is going to be a little bit less because instead of just $70 million every year, Again, we don't know the details, but let's say it's, it's $40 million for the first couple of years, then it's $60 million, and then the rest is deferred. 
So, you know, the, the value of, you know, $70 million is going to slowly decline year over year. But obviously, Otani's not thinking that. He just got an insane amount of money that nobody has ever seen or gotten before in the sports world. So it makes sense from both sides. And it makes sense why he brought that idea up. But now the question is going to be, the $700 million, is that right to spend on just one player alone? Because whether or not it's $70 million year over year, or if they're paying him $5 million for you know, 20 years after he retires, they're still paying him that money. So the idea that that amount of money can go to one person, again, you have to question. And you have to question, are the Dodgers going to quote-unquote win the contract in the long run? Or are they going to be regretting it at some point? Because pretty much every big contract we've seen in baseball, you can make the argument that it's been maybe not a great choice. Now, a, a lot of the, the big contracts, the big, the big value contracts, a lot of those have been signed in the last three or four years, so we don't know how they're going to end. But we did see a lot of, you know, maybe slightly smaller ones with some older players get kind of bad near the end whether that's Albert Pujols, Miguel Cabrera, even someone like Giancarlo Stanton, being paid a ton, that he's sort of fallen off. So in a lot of these big contracts, especially the ones that go for you know, 8, 10, 12 years, you don't quite know what it's going to look like in 8, 10, or 12 years. So for Otani, next year, year after that, year after that, it's going to look like a great investment. But in the year 2030, what are they going to be saying? And this isn't necessarily me saying that Otani is going to fall off a cliff, that he won't be bad. Again, if we're betting on someone, you can bet on Otani. But the amount of stress putting on his body the last few years, it's going to be tough. And I don't think this is someone we can just assume is going to be great into his late 30s. But yet the Dodgers are on the hook that he is going to be this great. But then that brings me to kind of the bigger problem with baseball and something you know I don't want to spend too much time on because we can spend a whole episode on this. But it's the idea of competitive balance and the idea that, yes, you can make the argument that $700 million for one player, I don't care who it is, is not a good decision. But the Dodgers can, can do that. They can make that decision. You know, if they were in a different situation, the Yankees could do that. Same thing, if they were in a maybe slightly different situation, the Mets would do that. Those are probably the only three teams that would, though. There are certainly not, you know, five or six teams that could dole out a $700 million contract. It might even be hard to argue that those three. So the fact that those three, and in this case, let's just say the Dodgers, can be really the only teams that will offer a $700 million contract. Like, why, why do others even try? You, you can take, you know, our local team in Seattle, the Mariners. Yes, there was rumors throughout the season that Otani might come to Seattle. Sounds like he spends some of his offseason here in Seattle and likes it. We had the, the come to Seattle chance when the All-Star game was here. 
he seems to, you know, like Seattle. When asked, you know, he was a little bit coy, but there was definitely rumors that, okay, maybe we have a shot. We have the Ichiro connection. We have, you know, him sounding like coming in second place when he came initially to the Angels. And we don't know the, the, the behind the scenes. We don't know in what order things happened, whether that's the Mariners just saying, nope, we're out, whether that's, you know, Otani's team essentially saying like, okay, here's kind of where the initial offers will be. And then the Mariners saying, no, we can't do that. But at the end of the day, if 700 million was the asking price, even if he wanted to go to the Mariners over the Dodgers and may have taken a, a slight pay cut, the Mariners weren't going to get even close to 700 million. As a Mariners fan, you can make the argument that they wouldn't have gotten close to two or 300 million, let alone 700 million. But let's say, you know, ownership was convinced somehow, which again, we won't go down that rabbit hole, that yes, let's, let's dole out a, a 12-year, $450 million contract, which would have been huge, which would have still broken the record for biggest contract in baseball. That wasn't even close to what the Dodgers could offer. And so you get into this problem of the Dodgers, Yankees, you know, throwing the Mets now with Steve Cohen. They are just on a different playing field than really any other team. They're on a different playing field compared to, you know, some of the other bigger, bigger contract teams, whether that's the Padres. They've been big spenders, let's say, although they had to cut costs on a trade we will get to in a second. Rangers, they've certainly doled out a lot of money. Phillies, Astros haven't been afraid to spend. Because then you get down to, you know, kind of the middle tier teams. And we can throw the Mariners in there. Teams like the Twins or the Cardinals. who might spend a little bit, but they're not even close to the top teams. And then we're not even including, you know, the, the Athletics, the Marlins, the Pirates, some of these really low spending teams. And so imagine we have a sport where playing fields are not the same. And I don't mean the stadiums. That part is fun about baseball. Every stadium is different. I mean the, the way that teams can be constructed. We're seeing that uh, a lot this offseason in Seattle. Obviously, the Mariners going through a lot of budget restraints. And yet, we're way better off than Oakland, or soon to be Las Vegas. We're way better off than, you know, Pittsburgh, Tampa Bay. But yet we are so far behind, you know, Houston, Texas, Toronto, who are then even so far behind the Dodgers and the Yankees and the Mets. So that makes baseball really difficult to enjoy, really difficult to really be a fan of. And I don't mean to get down on, you know, such a big day for Otani. I've mentioned I'm a huge fan. I'm glad he signed the contract that he did. But it makes it hard to be a fan of a team that you know is just not going to be able to compete with teams like that financially. And yes, you can throw in the other argument and there will be plenty of people who say, yeah, the, you know, the Tampa Bay Rays, they're always good and they don't have the money. Teams like the Royals, they won a World Series not too long ago. You know, they, they're not big spenders. And yes, obviously, you can win without spending money. But it helps if you spend money. The Texas Rangers just showed that. 
And so I think this is just an example. Maybe it's me being a little bit bitter of what the Mariners are going through, but it just shows that that teams have different resources. And this is really the only professional sport where that's the case. Because if this was the NBA, every team would have a chance. Because you know every team would want to sign Otani if, let's say, the max he could, he could go for was maybe $35 million a year. And then it, it might be more fun for him because then he can really choose where he wants to go. Maybe that's still the Dodgers. Maybe the Blue Jays have a chance. Sounds like they were close to getting him, so maybe he goes to Toronto. Mariners would actually have a shot if he actually wanted to come to Seattle. Or he'd go to you know Atlanta, San Francisco, some of the other teams that were in there. But instead, most likely it's going to come down to money. And as much as we can assume that maybe Otani wasn't all about the money, maybe he was more about fit, maybe he was more about comfortability, at the end of the day, it's hard to pass $700 million. So if the next best team was four, $400 million, $500 million, you're going to pick the $700 million. Especially if it's a team like the Dodgers, who it's not like they're just a bad team throwing out money. They're obviously good and have good players. So it's not a surprise. It just makes it hard really to root as a fan of baseball. Last thing I want to say really quickly on this before we get to a couple other baseball things is on the field, the Dodgers now have a legit big three. Obviously, Otani, one MVP, led the league in war. He obviously got hurt, missed a little bit of time, stopped pitching. It's Otani, though. We've talked about him plenty. So you add him to Mookie Betts, who was really close to winning MVP as well in the National League. And then Freddie Freeman, who might still be underrated, despite how he performs. But now he's going to be not only behind Mookie Betts, but now Shohei. And that's definitely the best big three we have right now. And you make the argument, the best three hitters we've seen together in a long time. If you look at uh, Fangraph's war from last year, Otani led the league in, in war, obviously uh, a little bit due to his pitching, but still he led the league in war. Betts was tied for second with Ronald Acuna Jr. And then third was Freddie Freeman. The Dodgers now have the three of the top four players in war all on one team. And that's great. Having three superstars, imagine having to go through those three at the top of the lineup. The only problem is this is baseball, this isn't basketball. In in the NBA, we saw big threes work all the time. You have three star players, just kind of throw in some some decent role players around them and you'll be good. Baseball is not quite like that. And so while I think the Dodgers, like they have been, seems like every year, will be a uh, a top playoff seed. They will have a really good regular season. But for them, truly, it's all going to matter come playoff time. So will they get enough pitching around them? Will they fill up the rest of their lineup? You know, they have guys like Will Smith, so it's not like it's just those three. But can they fill out the pieces around them to be a true championship team? And then it'll just come to the playoffs. And I don't want to say luck involved, but can they show up come playoff time? We haven't seen Otani in the playoffs. We've seen him in the WBC come up clutch uh, and win a world championship. 
So we know he can show up on the big stage. It'll just be fun to see him finally in the MLB playoffs. Lastly, before we get to uh, the other big news of the MLB this past week, I was looking up deferrals uh, in baseball contracts. Obviously, the big one was Bobby Benilla, which I mentioned. July 1st, Bobby Benilla Day, he gets $1.2 million, I believe, every year through July 2035. So we got another 12 years. But deferrals are actually somewhat common in contracts. And there was some that I didn't know or wasn't aware of. Uh, Ken Griffey Jr., obviously very important here in Seattle. He received uh, $3.5 million by the Reds every year since 2009. I think he gets one more next year. Then you have guys like Manny Ramirez. He's getting deferrals every year. Matt Holiday is getting one from the Cardinals through 2029. Chris Davis, I, I think this will be one that will definitely be in the news for the next decade or so. Chris Davis kind of fell apart with the Orioles. He will be paid $3.5 million every year through 2032 and then get $1.7 million for the next five years. And then some of the other big contracts we've seen, Rafael Devers, he's going to get a deferral starting in 2034. Max Scherzer has a deferral through the Nationals, so he's being paid by them through 2028. Strasburg also has a deferral in there. So we've seen it a lot in, in contracts. Obviously, Bobby Vanilla, the big one, but it was kind of fun to see the others. And don't know the details of the Otani one quite yet, but I'm assuming it's going to be a really interesting one, whether that's a big payment for a few years, whether that's you know him being paid $5 million for 30 years. It's going to be interesting. But when you sign a $700 million contract, it's going to be an interesting contract. So wanted to end with that before we get to just a couple other quick things in the MLB. The other big trade, the other big player on the move um, was via trade, and that was Juan Soto going to the Yankees. We knew that, that Otani and Soto were going to be the two big pieces to, to drop, and we finally got them, so I'm hoping that means some more player movement now. Everyone was waiting on Otani. Everyone was waiting who Soto was going to be traded to. And he was traded to the, the New York Yankees. The full trade was Soto and his teammate Trent Grisham uh, going from the Padres to the Yankees. Padres get back uh, pitcher Michael King, Drew Thorpe, Johnny Brito, Randy Vasquez, and then catcher Kyle Higashioka. Not actually a bad package by the Padres to get back. Juan Soto uh, is one of the, the superstars in the league. Anytime you're trading a superstar, it's hard to get return back. But it's even harder to get return back if he only has one year left on his deal. And you might say, oh, a team could trade for them and then extend him. Yes, in theory. But his agent is Scott Boris, who is known as really wanting to milk free agency. So you know, you know that Soto is going to hit the open market. And yes, the Yankees could very much well resign him at probably an insane number. Probably not 700 million, but it will be up there. Or they risk losing him after a year. So that's going to diminish the return a little bit. Be a little bit different if Soto had five years left. I think the trade return would be pretty crazy. Sort of like it was when he got traded to the Padres. 
But having said all that, the Padres did get a decent amount back. Michael King, uh, you know, has been a nice pitcher for the Yankees the last couple of years. He looks like he's turning out to be a pretty good starter. He's switched back and forth between the between starting and a relief role. But looks like they found some success, him starting. So they get him back. Johnny Brito, Randy Vasquez, a couple guys that that made their debuts in, in 2023. So a couple young arms there. Padres, they could definitely use pitching. So they obviously looking for a, you know, a pitching heavy return. So they get those three. They also get a prospect, Drew Thorpe. He was the Yankees' sixth-ranked prospect. And then Kyle Higashioka, kind of a decent catcher. You know, he's been more of a backup catcher for the Yankees, but not just the throw-in. So the Padres seemingly have needed catchers the last few years, ever since Austin Nola didn't really work out in the trade from the Mariners. So they get Higashioka back. And so, again, not a, not a terrible return. Not a you know, big star-studded return. But if Michael King kind of continues his breakout, if one of the other pitchers breaks out, it'll be a decent return for pretty much one year of Soto. Because the Padres, they spent a ton of money, most likely weren't going to re-sign him in a year, so you might as well trade him, get some assets back, and in particular some pitchers, because San Diego needs pitching. So not terrible. And then Soto and the Yankees, Again, similar to Dodgers and Otani, the Yankees can make this risk because they know they can, they can pay him a lot of money when it comes to it. So when it comes free agency next year and he's going to have lots of suitors, the Yankees know they're not going to get outbid. So compare that to a team like the Mariners. Obviously, we'll use our team in Seattle as the example. The Mariners certainly could have traded for Soto. Well, I say certainly, with all the ownership stuff, maybe even his salary this year was too much, but let's say that wasn't. They could certainly put together a package with all the pitching they have and trade for Soto. But the chances of them re-signing him, signing him to an extension come free agency, probably a little bit less likely, because then a team like the Yankees could come in with a huge offer and the Mariners lose him after one year. So is that worth the risk for the Mariners? I would say no. And as much as I would have loved to see Soto on the Mariners, even for one year, I don't know if I really wanted them to trade for him. If they did, obviously I'd be super excited, him and Julio Rodriguez together. But the risk of, of losing him after a year, I don't think was worth the cost of whatever it was to give up. But because baseball is played on different playing fields, which I mentioned, the Yankees can make that risk. And now they go into the season with two of the biggest stars in the game, Soto and Aaron Judge. Throw in some nice pieces like DJ LeMahieu. You're always optimistic about Giancarlo Stanton to begin the year. Obviously, still have Garrett Cole headlining the rotation. So the Yankees, they're trying to compete, and they have not competed the last few years. And this was their way of saying, no, we're still the Yankees. We're still going to be around. So they make that trade. And hopefully get the ball rolling on some other moves coming in the near future. There's been some minor stuff, but those were the two big names. And I, as I mentioned, once those two names went, you knew the ball was going to get rolling. 
So Otani signs this weekend. I'm hoping that means maybe Yamamoto signs, the star pitcher coming from Japan. Maybe we see Blake Snell sign within a week. Maybe we see some trades start to happen. Again, obviously the Mariners I've talked about, they got to make a move, preferably more than one move. Now they know Otani for sure is not coming. They probably knew that a long time ago. Juan Soto, chance to trade for him. They didn't, so now they can make a move. And then some of the other teams, you know, whether that's uh, the Reds, whether that's the Diamondbacks, although they've, they've already made a couple smaller moves, whether that's the Red Sox, the Cubs, you know, Cody Bellinger is another one that might sign here in the next couple of weeks. We still got a lot of moves still to come in baseball. We've seen the biggest two names drop, but we will continue to, to cover all of the, the remaining free agency and all the trade stuff in the coming weeks, uh, you know, as we wrap up this sort of big time of the year in the MLB offseason. Once we get to January, kind of dies down for a couple months, but more to come in the couple weeks as we get some more breaking news in the MLB offseason. NFL Week 14, starting to wrap up. Just got done watching a Sunday night game between the Cowboys and Eagles. This looked like it had the makings of a pretty good game. Cowboys-Eagles look to be fighting for kind of the second place team right behind the 49ers in the NFC. But in the end, Cowboys end up blowing out the Eagles 33-13. to And let's spend a couple minutes, we'll talk about both teams and really decide, is this, does this say more about the Eagles or does this say more about the Cowboys? Because if we start with the Cowboys, the conversation all throughout the season has been, yes, the Cowboys are good. Yes, their offense looks a lot better. No more Kellen Moore calling the plays. Mike McCarthy has taken that over. And Dak Prescott has a legitimate shot, I think, to win MVP. CeeDee Lamb has turned into maybe one of the top-tier receivers in the league. And their defense, despite losing Trayvon Diggs, you know, they still have Micah Parsons. They still have Stephon Gilmore. They seem like a really talented team. They just needed to put it together against a, a really quality opponent. Because up until today, the two toughest teams the Cowboys have played, they lost both those games. So whether it was getting blown out against the 49ers a couple months ago, whether it was losing a heartbreaker right at the end to the Eagles the first time they played them, they hadn't shown that they were capable of beating a really good team. So now they, they get a home game against the Eagles, a little rematch, and they not only win, but they win pretty easily. And so you can make the case they, that the Cowboys have figured something out, that they have now beaten a good team. The question then is just going to be, are the Eagles really that good of a team? And so we will we'll talk about that in a second when we talk Eagles. But the Cowboys look like they're probably the best chance for any NFC team to dethrone the 49ers. I keep saying it. I've said it every week. I think the 49ers, win healthy, are the best team in the league. And they've shown that they can blow out the Cowboys and they can blow out the Eagles. And those are probably the two other best teams in the NFC. So to me, the 49ers are a, a tier above everyone else. So then the question is Cowboy-Eagles. 
And you don't want to overreact, but it definitely looks like the Cowboys have the upper hand. I mentioned how well Dak Prescott is playing. He probably will be the MVP favorite after this weekend. Probably him and Brock Purdy will be the two, two favorites going into the last month of the season. And to me, if I had to vote right now, it would be Dak Prescott. Yes, CeeDee Lamb has been amazing. Yes, they have a couple other weapons. But this is probably the best that Dak Prescott's ever looked. And it's certainly the best that the Dallas offense has looked over the last few years. And a lot of that is just due to the maturity of Dak Prescott. And so we've, we've talked Brock Purdy, what his MVP case is. To me, I am more scared of Dak Prescott than I am of Brock Purdy. When the 49ers play, great example this week with the Seahawks playing the 49ers, I am more scared of you know, Christian McCaffrey. I am more scared of Debo Samuel, more scared of George Kittle than I am of Brock Purdy. And yes, he made some good throws. We will talk about that game. But when we look at the Cowboys, yes, I'm really scared of CeeDee Lamb. But I'm also scared of Dak Prescott. When he drops back, if my defense is facing him, I am scared of what he has the capabilities to do. So I think in probably a pretty down year for quarterback play this year, Dak Prescott has a legitimate shot of winning MVP. And so I think because of that, because of how well he's playing, I think the Cowboys at least have the best shot of dethroning the 49ers. The Eagles, on the other hand, uh, they've now lost two in a row. The, the more concerning part is those two games are against the two contenders in the NFC, the 49ers last week, and now the Cowboys this week. And they didn't just lose, but they got blown out. They got blown out at home against the 49ers last week, get blown out on the road against the Cowboys. And something is just a little bit off with this team. And we were kind of saying that up until this stretch. You know, we said it a couple of weeks ago when they were 10-1. and one. But yes, they were the best record, but were they the best team? And I think they've shown they, at least right now, are not the best team. So whether that's due to some injuries, you know, Jalen Hurts has been kind of nursing a knee injury the last month or two, whether that's some injuries on defense that they've, they've had to deal with, something is just not quite right. Offensively, I think I'm a little less concerned. I think I have more confidence that they can figure it out. Hurts, he will get healthy. I think when they need to, they can put together a drive. They just need to do it a little bit more consistently. But defensively, they've certainly struggled the last couple of weeks. And yes, they've played two of the best offenses in the league. But these are the teams they're going to have to play come playoff time. And both the 49ers and the Cowboys could do pretty much whatever they wanted against this defense. So a defense that has some pretty big names, yes, has dealt with some injuries, but still has some pretty high-quality players, something is just not quite clicking. They gave up six straight touchdowns to the 49ers last week and then followed it up with four straight scoring drives in the first half for the Cowboys. Cowboys did not punt. They went touchdown, field goal, touchdown, touchdown in their four first-half possessions. So that's the side of the ball that they're going to have to get figured out. Because, yes, they've played two really good teams but for the Eagles, if they're going to be Super Bowl contenders again, those are the teams they're going to have to beat. And the way the offense is going, they're not going to necessarily be in shootouts. 
So the defense is going to have to step it up if they want to get where they got last year. Now, the good news for the Eagles, relatively easy schedule to finish it out. They play Monday night here in Seattle. Uh, The Seahawks, we will talk about them, certainly having their issues. That's going to be a really important game for both teams. And in the Eagles' case, a good opportunity for them to get back on track. And then they finish with home games against the Giants and Cardinals before finishing on the road in New York uh, with a rematch against the Giants again. Yes, the Giants have looked better. Yes, Tommy DeVito has looked okay. But there's a chance the Eagles can go 4-0 and or at least 3-1. and And that would get them at 13 or 14 wins. So despite saying how, how bad the Eagles have looked, how they've struggled, they still very well likely could get 13 wins, if not 14 wins. The Cowboys, on the other hand, they go at Buffalo, at Miami, and then home for Detroit, and then at the Commanders in Week 18. A lot harder of a schedule, a lot harder for them to go 4-0, but again, they have looked really good as of late, so I wouldn't put it past them. But despite saying the Cowboys have looked better, I think the Eagles have a chance to finish with a better record and potentially get the number one seed, and that would be huge. Yes, I know the 49ers, they went into Philly and beat them pretty easily. But if the Eagles want a shot back at the Super Bowl, I think getting a one seed, getting to play in Philly, that's going to be really important. So that's something to track, both between the Eagles and Cowboys. Obviously, only one of them can win the division. But then how that lines up with the 49ers. Because right now, they are all 10-3. and 49ers, they have the inside track, obviously, they, because they've beaten both teams. The 49ers finish at Cardinals, home against Baltimore, at the Commanders, and home against the Rams. So if the, the 49ers run the table, they are the one seed. So they control their own destiny. To them, probably it doesn't matter. They've, they've gone into Philly, they've won. They blew out the Cowboys earlier. They are not concerned. But it will be something to monitor who ends up getting the one seed in the NFC. On the AFC side, I would probably say two teams have a chance to finish with the one seed. One of them is playing tomorrow night. Uh, Dolphins play the Titans at home. Assuming they win that, they will be 10-3. and three. And then the other team is the Ravens, who had probably the game of the week. Potentially could be the game of the year uh, between the Ravens and the Rams. Back and forth game, ends up going to overtime. Ravens end up getting a walk-off punt return touchdown uh, to win the game and beat a, a pretty good Rams team. So the Ravens now are 10-3. and three, But they finish with at Jacksonville, at the 49ers on Christmas Day, home for the Dolphins and home for the Steelers. So not exactly an easy schedule. But it could be that that Week 17 game against the Dolphins on New Year's Eve That might be for the one seed. Again, we'll see what happens with Miami tomorrow. We'll see what happens with Miami and Baltimore the next couple weeks. But to me, I think those two teams are going to be fighting for the one seed. Because other than that, there's been a lot of kind of mediocre play, a lot of parity across the league. And this goes for both conferences. And this was the big thing that I wanted to to highlight today was the fact that, yes, the 49ers, probably a tier 
by themselves. Then you can throw maybe the Cowboys, the Ravens, the Dolphins in another tier. Throw in maybe the Eagles as well. But then you just have a lot of teams that on any given day can look good, but on any given day they could lose against any team. And so because of that, pretty much half the league is right around the same record, right around 500. In the AFC, we have the Steelers, the Colts, the Texans, Broncos, Bengals, and Bills, all at seven and six, and all tied for the last two playoff spots. So that's six teams right at seven and six. Then on the NFC side, you have the Vikings are seven and six. Packers, they play tomorrow, they're six and six. They will either be seven and six or six and seven. The Rams, Seahawks, Falcons, and Saints all at six and seven. So that's six teams in the NFC that are either one game above 500 or one game below. So that's 12 teams that are pretty much right around 500. And those 12 teams, they're all going to be fighting for the last couple of playoff spots. On the AFC side, you have Steelers and Colts. They're just by tiebreakers. They're in the playoffs right now. Steelers have lost to both the Cardinals and the Patriots the last two weeks. Kenny Pickett's been hurt. Their offense has been a mess all year anyways. Just based on their defense, just based on having Mike Tomlin as their head coach, you would assume they would have made the playoffs, especially when they started 7-4, and four, but at this point you don't really know, so they might start to fall out. Then you have the Texans, who have looked really good. C.J. Stroud, you know, we've talked about him as a rookie leading them into the playoffs. Well, then they get demolished by the Jets of all teams this week. C.J. Stroud goes out with a concussion, unfortunately. We'll see if he's able to play. But suddenly their playoff picture is in doubt. Then you have some, some teams kind of coming out of nowhere. The Colts and Broncos, both 7-6. and six. They might not be exciting teams necessarily, but they're kind of slowly just hanging around. And in the Broncos' case, they're only a game behind the Chiefs. The Chiefs, they have their issues. We can spend uh, a whole other episode talking about. But suddenly the Broncos are coming out of nowhere. And they, they took a step back last week, but got back on the winning track this week against a, a Chargers team, which is a mess. They lose Justin Herbert. But suddenly the Broncos, they could potentially win the division. And the Chiefs, you know, if they, if they end up not winning the division, I think we're going to have to see major changes. Because for a team with expectations like them, they, they can't not win the division with Patrick Mahomes, with Andy Reid. They have a, a relatively easy schedule, so I'm not saying they won't, but it's something to monitor, especially for someone like me who picked the Chiefs to get to the Super Bowl. And it's becoming less and less likely that that's going to happen. And then the, the other two teams, the Bengals and Bills, also 7-6. and six. Those were two teams you frankly expected to make the playoffs and compete for Super Bowls at the, the beginning of the year. Bills ha- have struggled. They've had some injuries as well. And then, of course, the Bengals lost Joe Burrow. But I think both of them are suddenly teams you don't exactly want to play. Jake Browning, local guy here in Seattle, went to University of Washington. He was one of the top recruits in high school. He set records in high school. He set records here at UW. 
So he's a good quarterback, and I'm glad to see that he's really showing that with the Bengals. So I wouldn't necessarily count them out. And then anytime you have Josh Allen for Buffalo, you can't count them out as well. So only four games left. A bunch of those teams are going to not make the playoffs. And so that will be kind of fun to, to look at each week. And then on the NFC side, the Vikings, I don't really know what to do with them. They're seven and six, so they are currently a six seed. And they won probably the worst game of the year. And it was a week ago that I talked about the, the Chargers and Patriots potentially playing the worst game of the year with the Chargers winning six to nothing. Well, the Vikings won three to nothing, which has only happened a few times in the NFL. They beat the Raiders three to nothing. Josh Dobbs was a great story earlier in the year. He got benched. So I don't know exactly who they're going to go with next week. Maybe they stick with Nick Mullins. Maybe they go back to Dobbs. Whatever it is, they have weapons. They just need some quarterback. So if they can figure that out, they'll be a playoff team. But I think if they do make the playoffs, they won't be super competitive. The problem with the Vikings, they finish the year with the Lions, Packers, and Lions again. So tough schedule. I would bet on them dropping out, but we will see. And then you have the Packers at 6-6. Six and six. We will see what happens Monday night against the Giants. Again, based on how they've been playing, could be a winnable game for the Packers. But both the Packers and then the Rams probably have the two easiest schedules. Packers finish the year with the Buccaneers, Panthers, Vikings, and Bears. So if they're able to beat the Lions and Chiefs, which they've done in back-to-back weeks, they certainly could run the table, so we could see the Packers in there. And then the Rams obviously lost the heart, heartbreaker to the Ravens that I mentioned. But they finished with Commanders, Saints, at the Giants, and then at the 49ers. We'll see if the 49ers will be playing for something at that point. But those are two teams that, that have the pieces and have been playing well these last few weeks and have a favorable schedule. Because if you compare that to our Seahawks here in Seattle, Slightly, slightly easier schedule. The schedule opens up a little bit for the Seahawks these last few weeks. But again, if you were pointing arrows for some of these teams, Packers and Rams certainly on the upswing. Seahawks certainly on the downswing. That doesn't mean they won't make it. They do finish with Titans, Steelers, and Cardinals. So there's a chance. And again, as a Seahawks fan, I can be optimistic. But obviously need to get healthy. And then the, the final two teams. At six and seven in the NFC, the Saints and Falcons. The Saints, Falcons, and I'll throw the Buccaneers in. They are all six and seven. One of them is going to win the division. One of them is going to win the division probably at eight and nine, most likely. The chances that multiple teams make it, I think, are relatively slim. It's probably the worst division in football, but you never know. It's been a weird year. So between the, the chaos right at the, the, the last few spots in the AFC and the chaos of all the spots in the NFC, it's going to be a fun few weeks. And it's something that each week we'll, we'll look at the playoff picture. We'll see exactly who's going to, going to make it, who we think has the best shot at making it. And then you never know. All the teams I mentioned, there's always one playoff team that sneaks in and then has a big upset in round one. 
So you never know. You can pick one of those teams and we will certainly look at it these next few weeks. Last two things I wanted to get to before we wrap up. I mentioned the Seahawks and 49ers game. I wanted to touch on just a little bit. I've spent time talking about Brock Purdy and his MVP case. I mentioned at the top how I'm really more scared of all their weapons than I am Brock Purdy. But that doesn't mean he's not a good quarterback. And I I think I talked about that last week when he was MVP favorite. Just because I'm saying he shouldn't be the MVP, that doesn't mean I'm saying he's a bad quarterback. I think if you watch him play, he's really sharp in his reads. He can make pretty much any throw. And right now, he's just oozing with confidence. He knows exactly where the ball needs to go. He has all these great weapons around him. And so watching this game against the Seahawks, which, yeah, Seattle kept it a little bit closer than the last game. He definitely made some throws where you're, where you're impressed. You're like, yeah, that's a, that's a good throw. But again, I go back to, am I really scared of him or am I scared of all the weapons around him? Because I think both can be true. I think it can be true that I am more scared of his weapons. But I can also say that he's a good quarterback. Because this, this game was a little bit different. He had a little bit more, more deep throws, a few more throws down the field, which sometimes has been lacking. A lot of his big plays are, are shorter air yards, and then someone like Debo Samuel, someone like McCaffrey takes it the distance. But in this case, both Debo Samuel and George Kittle got deep, and Purdy made good throws. Those are throws that are on the run, require you know, a bit of touch, certainly a lot of accuracy to hit them in stride. So he made good throws. But at the same time, if you look at the replay, both guys were pretty open. And I'm not saying that every quarterback is hitting them. There are certainly now a lot of quarterbacks in the league that are not hitting those. But at the same time, if you're a good quarterback, you should be able to hit those throws. And I think Purdy does, and I think he is a good quarterback. I'm just wondering if he's the best, if he should be considered the MVP. So I spent, I spent time on that last week. I don't need to go into that again. From the Seahawks' point of view, yes, they didn't have Geno. Yes, Drew Locke had to come in. And he looked good, at least to begin the game. Led an impressive touchdown drive, finishing with a, a pretty good pass to DK on the sideline for a touchdown. But after that, kind of got stagnant. Running game certainly didn't help him a lot. And then the defense. You know, it's, it's filled with big names, kind of similar to the Eagles, but yet they're just having problems stopping anybody. So I think come next year, there's probably going to be a, a decent amount of turnover in this defense. I think there's a lot of good pieces. Witherspoon, Boye Mafe, Reek Woolen, Jordan Brooks, bringing in Leonard Williams. Hopefully they bring him back. There's a lot of good pieces, but then there's also guys like Jamal Adams, Bobby Wagner, that just aren't giving enough, at least based on what they're being paid. And so I hate to see that, especially for Bobby. He's been the staple of the defense for the last decade, but you can tell he's, he's missed a step. And then I don't know what's going on with Jamal Adams. I would be shocked if he's on the team next year. So there are going to be changes. Now, whether that's, you know, the, the team kind of falters, goes... 7-10, and 10, misses the playoffs kind of changes, or if the Seahawks do make the playoffs and have another wildcard exit, I do still think there will be changes. 
I think the only, the only positive to take away from these last few weeks is just acknowledging that the Seahawks team is young. The Seahawks team was supposed to be rebuilding. They just rebuilt a little bit faster than expected. But no, they are not going to compete with the 49ers this year. There's just too much of a talent discrepancy. I think the, the concern and the, the frustration due to CX fans is that, yes, we weren't supposed to compete with the, the 49ers, but we should have been able to compete with the Rams and some of these other teams. So that's where the frustration comes in. And then obviously, losing four in a row, that's never going to cause a fan base to be happy. So. Uh, lots of frustration. We'll see if it changes next Monday against Philly. And then the last thing is kind of a, a somber thing, and I don't want to end on a somber note, but it's just the amount of quarterbacks that have gotten hurt this year. We saw Justin Herbert, the Chargers quarterback, broke his finger, I believe. He's probably out for the year. So in a league that always seems a struggle to find 32 really quality quarterbacks. There's been a good number that have had to go into backups and sometimes third string quarterbacks. And I think that's why we've seen some of the play falter. So whether it's, you know, Trevor Lawrence going down for a little bit last week, Deshaun Watson, Anthony Richardson, Kenny Pickett being hurt at times for the Steelers, Joe Burrow, of course, going out for the year, Justin Herbert now out for the year, Aaron Rodgers way back in week one, out for the year. That's five teams in the AFC alone that have lost their quarterback for the year, and then a couple others that have been hurt and in and out. Then you have Kirk Cousins, who tore his Achilles. He's out for the year. Daniel Jones, he's out for the year. Kyler Murray, he was out for a good chunk of time. Justin Fields missed time. Geno Smith has now missed a game. Jalen Hurts, he's still playing, but has been struggling with injury. So I don't have the, the data necessarily, but it does feel like this year has been really hard on quarterbacks, and it's unfortunate to see yet another one in Justin Herbert go down this week. And I think you can, again, you can point some of that struggle, some of the, the, the offensive numbers going down, to the fact that a lot of quarterbacks have been hurt. And then we're forced to watch, you know, the Tim Boyles, the Nick Mullins, the Jaron Halls, those players that, you know, no disrespect to them, aren't really capable starting quarterbacks in the NFL. It will be fun to see what seems to be a pretty, pretty good and pretty deep quarterback class this year come in. See if they are able to, you know, kickstart some of the offense, but obviously no guarantees. Bryce Young, he's been a mess, not necessarily a fault of him, but it's been a mess in Carolina, so... It's not necessarily a guarantee, but it would be nice to see some quarterbacks come in. Whether that's Caleb Williams, Michael Penix, Jaden Daniels, Drake May. We will get to all of that later. But kind of a kind of a rough year for quarterbacks. And you know, we'll we'll knock on wood that everyone else stays healthy. We get a good playoffs, but there's still a month left in the season. We've seen a lot, a lot of quarterbacks go down due to injury. So we'll 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 hope that that's the case. We'll hope that, that that is it and we can get uh, a pretty good last month of the season. I mentioned lots of playoff stuff going, so these next couple of weeks we will, we will follow that. We will go through MVPs, all the award races, all of that over the next few weeks in the NFL. 
that will do it for today's episode. Coming up on Wednesday, we have a special episode coming out. A couple weeks ago, my brother and I recorded a sports cities draft. So we debated and picked the best cities based on sports teams. So a pretty fun episode coming out Wednesday. Make sure to check that out on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and we will see you then. 